Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Grace and peace be multiplied to each of you today in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Let me publicly thank Dr. Aiken for the wonderful invitation to be with you today and to proclaim the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ to you. If you would take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. Father, in the name of Jesus, we pray that you would open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things from your Word. Help me to speak faithfully. Help us to hear clearly your word and to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory. Amen. Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 through 20 reads, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Amen. The supremacy of Jesus Christ. The apostle Paul, while under house arrest, received news about the church of Colossae. Epaphras informed Paul about their faith in Christ Jesus and their love for all the saints. It was also disturbing news. False teachers promoted error about the person of Christ. They preached a Christ that was preeminent, prominent rather, but not preeminent. They claimed that Jesus was just one of many angelic emanations of God. And in the process, they ultimately denied both the deity and the humanity of Christ. This error about the person of Christ opened the door to confusion about the gospel, the church, and the Christian life. Various isms began to infiltrate the church. None of these errors were promoted to rival Christ. Worse, they were all presented alongside of Christ as if Jesus is not enough. The Apostle Paul, receiving this news, was moved to write this letter to the church exalting the supremacy and the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20 is the beginning of the main body of the letter. Paul greets the saints in verses 1 and 2. Paul thanks God for the church in verses 3 through 8. Paul prays for them in verses 9 through 14. But now he shifts from introduction to the heart of the matter. Colossians is polemical, but Paul begins the letter with a declaration of the truth, not a refutation of error. 
The text before us is one of the most important statements about the person of Christ in the New Testament. It is also a greatly debated text because of its lofty language and its daring claims. Scholars tell us that this passage very well may have been a hymn that the early church sung in corporate worship. But even if the words of this text do not derive from worship, they should result in worship. And the worship of Christ should overflow into witness for Christ. Paul in this text presents to us the most essential truth of the historic Christian faith. I can state it in seven words. Christianity is Christ and Christ is God. Colossians chapter one verses 15 through 20 is about the real Jesus. Here, Paul gives us two big reasons why we can live and minister and witness with unwavering confidence in the supremacy of Christ. The first reason is because Jesus Christ is supreme over all creation. He is supreme over all creation. Verse 15 begins, he is the image of the invisible God. Paul begins the text with two great affirmations. First, he wants to make it clear that God is invisible. This is the consistent teaching of scripture. John chapter four, verse 24, Jesus says, God is spirit. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17, we are told that he is the immortal, invisible God. And 1 John chapter 4, verse 12, just bluntly says, no one has ever seen God. God occasionally showed up in a theophany, but his essential nature has never been seen. God is invisible. But then Paul further affirms that Jesus Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. This word image is the term from which we get our word icon. It means the representation or manifestation of a thing. Exodus 20 verse four warns us not to make any carved image in the likeness of anything on earth or in heaven or in the waters. Nothing man creates can fully or faithfully represent God. Yet Genesis 1.27 says that man himself was made in the image of God. We are made with personhood, mind, will, and emotions, but humanity does not perfectly fully represent the image of God. We do not represent the image of God essentially. That is, we do not share God's incommunicable attributes like uh, eternality and immutability and omniscience and omnipresence and omnipotence. And more importantly, we do not share God's image morally. God is holy and we are not. All have sinned and fall short of the glory, but there is one who truly, perfectly represents God essentially and morally. Verse 15 says, he is the image of the invisible God. 
Jesus represents God. Jesus manifests God. John chapter 1, verse 18 says, no one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the bosom of the Father has made him known. That last phrase of John 1, verse 18 is the term from which we get our word exegesis, to bring out of. It is the term for faithful preaching that exposes the God-intended meaning of the text rather than imposing human opinion on the text. John uses the word to say that Jesus is the exegesis of God. If you want to know what God looks like, just look at Jesus. He is the radiance of his glory, says Hebrews 1 verse 3, and the exact imprint of his nature. He represents God and he manifests God. Remember in the upper room where Philip says to Jesus, you know, we've had all this father talk, but just show us the father and that'll satisfy us. And in John 14, verse 19, Jesus says, Philip, you are asking an elementary question on graduation day. <laughs> How can you long time be with me and not know who I am? What you are asking for, you are looking at. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How could you ask, show us the Father? Those who know my dad will tell you how much I resemble my dad. But I could never say that if you've seen me, you've seen my dad. It's Jesus. It's more than just a representation of God. He himself is the very image of God. He is God in the flesh. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Jehovah Witnesses and other cults use this text, misuse this text, to teach that Jesus was the first created thing God created. But to make that claim would be for Paul to agree with the false teachers he writes this text to refute. And it would deny the plain context of the text where Paul is claiming Jesus is the creator God. Firstborn here does not mean first in order, in that regard, Cain is the firstborn of creation. It is first in rank. It is a language used in Exodus 4, verse 14, verse 4, verse 22, that is, where God says to Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn, reflecting the special favor of divine rank that Israel had among the nations with God. And in Psalms, the Lord said to David, that he will make a king who will be the firstborn, higher than all the other kings. This is the way Paul uses the term here of rank, he says. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. The false teachers are claiming that Jesus is just another emanation of God derived from generations of angels here. Paul refused that by saying, Jesus is Lord over all creation. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn among all creation. He makes that point by claiming that Jesus both created the world and sustains the world. Jesus created the world. Verse 
16 explains verse 15 and shows us the threefold relationship Christ has to creation. He first says Christ is the source of creation, for by him all things were created. Jesus is the creator of the world. Who created the world? Who created the universe? Who created the starry wonders above us? Who flung the stars out in space? Who scooped out the deep oceans? Who stacked up the mountains? Who made you and me? Paul claims that if you check the label of everything created, it is all imprinted the same way, made by Jesus. Jesus is the creator of the physical world. This is what Paul means when he refers to things on earth and things physical. He is the creator of the physical world around us. Robert Gromacki writes that Jesus alone should be praised. When we view the minute complexities of life in a microscope or the vastness of the universe in a telescope. He alone should be glorified for creation, not some series of angelic emanations, not some impersonal mother nature and not some atheistic theory of evolution. Jesus created everything visible on earth. And not only did he create the physical world, he also created the spiritual world. This is what Paul means when he refers to in verse 16, things in heaven and things invisible. He lists four categories, thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. No need to try to distinguish those terms. The point is, whatever they mean, Jesus made all of them. He is the one who created not only the physical world around us, but he is the creator of all of the spirit beings in the unseen world around us, including evil angels aligned with Satan's wicked agenda. They must submit to the authority of Jesus Christ. He created the world. He is the source of creation, but he is also the agent of creation. All things were created through him. That is, he didn't just create the world and step back to leave it to his own devices. All things were created through him, we are told. The Bible says in John 1 verse 3, that he created all things and without him there was nothing made that was made. Later in Hebrews chapter one, verses one and two, we are told long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom he created the world. He is the source of creation. He is the agent of creation and he is the goal of creation. All things were not only made by him and through him, but verse 16 ends by saying they were all made for 
him. The glory of Jesus Christ. It's the goal of the created world. All things were made for his purpose and his pleasure and his praise. Philippians chapter 2 verses 9 through 11 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is supreme over all creation because Jesus created the world and Jesus sustains the world. Look at verse 17. He is before all things. <laughs> In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is before all things. He predates and antedates all creation. Remember in John 8 when they are debating? Unbelieving Jews are debating Jesus, and they kind of take offense, you know, to this young man, barely 30, talking about Father Abraham as if he intimately knows Abraham, even though Abraham has died centuries ago. Jesus says in John 8, verse 58, truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. He is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. I was in the seventh grade, Crozier Junior High School there in Los Angeles area, when I was first confronted with the atheistic claims of evolution. My science teacher, who I liked and respect, basically flatly denied the existence of a God and boldly declared evolution is the only explanation for the creation of the world. I, was, I sat there in shocked silence. There was a classmate who tried to take the teacher on quoting Genesis 1 and 1, but using technical scientific language, he just he shot her down in front of the whole class and no one else dared to say anything. And I just remember how long that, that experience stuck with me. When I look back, I, I just wish I could have simply said, science doesn't have the explanation for everything. I think that just would have been the one thing I would have wanted to say. For instance, matter it's made up of space. Go figure that one out. <laughs> if matter is made up of space, what holds matter together? Scientists debate that and try to figure it out. But there is an answer. Verse 17 of our text says that Christ is before all things, and he is the one who is holding all things together. Jesus not only created the world, he sustains the world. Why do you think it is that the world is a cosmos and not a chaos? Why do you think it is that the earth is close enough to the sun that we don't freeze, but far enough away that we don't burn? Why do you think it is 
The sun keeps rising in the east and going down in the west. Why do you think it is that winter, spring, summer, and fall keep passing in their course? Why do you think it is that the flowers keep budding and blooming and fading and falling? One answer, Jesus is holding all things together. And what is true of the vast universe, I want to add before I move on, is true of your life and true of your family and true of your ministry. The only reason you're looking at me today and I'm looking at you is because Jesus is holding all things together. Jesus Christ is supreme over all creation. But quickly, with the time I have left, consider with me that Jesus Christ is supreme over the church. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. There are three titles for Christ here in verse 18. He is, first of all, the head. The New Testament does not define the church as much as it describes the church using various word pictures, a body, a flock, a family, a temple, an army. The primary metaphor for the church in the scriptures is that of a body. In most places, it refers to the mutual dependence of the members of the body. But here, the reference is to the total dependence the body has on its head. Anything without a head is dead. Anything with more than one head is a monster. <laughs> Jesus alone is the one true head of the church. And he is the beginning. Revelation 22 verse 13, I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He is the beginning. The text also declares he is the firstborn from the dead. In Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, he declares, I am the first and the last, the living one. I, I was dead, but behold, I am alive forevermore. And I hold the keys to death and Hades. He is the firstborn from among the dead. This is the second reference to the firstborn. Verse 15 says he's the firstborn of all creation. Now he is the firstborn from the dead. Again, this is about rank, not chronology. Jesus was not the first dead person raised. He himself raised three persons from the dead. But of course, those acts were resuscitations, not resurrections in the truest sense, right? Lazarus was raised but died again. Jesus was raised and lives forevermore. He is the head, the beginning, the firstborn for this reason, so that in everything he might be preeminent, that he might be supreme. Jesus is to have first place full authority and final say in everything that happens in the church. He is the firstborn, the beginning, the head, so that Jesus alone 
is to exercise supreme authority over the church. We should serve him and honor him and worship him as the supreme head of the church for two reasons here in the text, verse 19 and 20. First of all, because of the incarnation of Christ. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In the wilderness wanderings of the children of Israel, they had no permanent dwelling place. They would uh, live in extended stay, but temporary tents. And the tabernacle where they met with God was, was also temporary. And then Solomon builds a temple to God. But in 1, Corinthians, 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27, he asks, will God really dwell on the earth? Heaven and the heavens of heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built? Nothing on earth can contain the living God as a dwelling place. But the Bible says... In Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This is a statement as much about God the Father as it is about the person of Jesus Christ. God dwelled in Christ. John 1 verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only forgotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. But not only... Did the Father dwell in Christ? He was pleased to dwell in Christ. Matthew chapter 3, Jesus receives this benediction from the Father. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The Father dwelt in Christ, was pleased to dwell in Christ, and it pleased the Father that all of the fullness of the Godhead should dwell in Christ. Colossians chapter 2, verses 8, and 10, 8 through 10, Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. The supremacy of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ are inextricably tied together. Because he is supreme over all, there is nothing lacking in our salvation. We are complete in him. Jesus is everything that we need. We see this not only, however, in his incarnation, but also in his atonement. Verses 19 and 20. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The word reconciled assumes that a relationship has been broken. and This is the human predicament. Our sin has separated us from God. But God has graciously sought us and provided a means of reconciliation by his son. Paul says in 1 Timothy 2 verses 5 and 6 that there is only one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself up as a ransom for all. We have been reconciled, but not just have we been reconciled. Listen to what Paul says. He has reconciled to himself all things. 
Notice how this all-inclusive language is used throughout this passage. Verse 15, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Verse 16, by him all things were created. Verse 17, he is before all things, all things hold together. He's the beginning, verse 18, the firstborn, so that everything or all things he might stand as preeminent. And verse 19, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And now we see through his reconciling work, all things have been reconciled to himself. Not only are we beneficiaries of his reconciling work, but so is all of creation, everything in heaven and on earth. He has made peace by the blood of his cross. This uh, is language not used anywhere else. The Bible says a lot about the blood of Christ and a lot about the cross of Christ. Here, Paul joins the ideas together and speaks of the blood of his cross, emphatically declaring the total sufficiency of the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's because this Christ is who he is and has done what he has done that we can live and minister and witness with confidence in him. We are ambassadors for Christ, Paul says. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God for he, God, made him Christ who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. Have you heard of the Battle of Blue Licks? It's the final battle of the revolutionary, uh, the civil, U.S. Civil War, but it's a battle that should not have taken place. It should not have taken place because peace had already been declared. The news was just slow to get over the Appalachian Mountains to Blue Licks, Kentucky, and so they fought a battle there that should have never taken place because peace, peace had been declared. Is this not the world around us fighting against God when peace has been declared by the blood of Jesus? May the Lord use you to go and proclaim this Christ and his work to a dark, sinful, and needy world. Alas, indeed, my Savior bleed. Did my sovereign die? He devote that sacred head for such a worm as I. Was it for crimes that I had done? He groaned upon the tree. Amazing pity, grace unknown, love beyond degree. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light. And the burdens of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight. Now, I'm happy all the day. Thank you, Father, for your sovereign, supreme, and all-sufficient Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our prophet, priest, and king. Thank you that we are complete in him. Thank you that we can face the days before us by faith and with faithfulness in light of the fact that this Christ 
our Savior and Lord, reigns over all creation and is the head of the church. Lord, would you forgive us for making more of the circumstances around us than we do the supremacy of Christ? And would you help us to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in this Lord, our labor is not in vain. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.